You know, stay up here for just for a second, Steve. Steve um, thanked a lot of people in the last 10 minutes, um, but I know this church hasn't had a chance to say thank you to you for all the work you've done, your visionary leadership. So, thank you. They, they love you here. So, and I do too. I love Steve Choi. Uh, not just because he's a, a graduate of Talbot School of Theology at Bible University, not just because of your passion for missions, not just because you want to see a Holy Spirit uh, work in this church, but because you take God's Word seriously here. And we're so thankful for that. Uh, I was on the phone um, not long ago with Rick Warren. I know it sounds like I'm name dropping. <laughs> Bill Gates once told me never to be a name dropper. Um, anyway... When I was on the phone, uh, he was talking about the local church, and he said that uh, two things. Um, God's hand of blessing will remain upon those churches that stay true to God's word. And he also said those churches that stay true to God's word um, may even face opposition. And so I know both of those are true. And so it was with a deep sense of conviction that uh, Steve Choi and a number of others. And it's great to see June and Sam today and Yvette at Biola leading worship and so many others, but um, had this uh, idea, uh, encouraged by Sharon, obviously, uh, 10 years ago to um, start this uh, wonderful community to proclaim gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the hope uh, to the world. And look at where you are now with uh, so many people, so many children. Uh, so many uh, different ways in which you have uh, made an impact, not just on Orange County and beyond, but certainly to the, uh, to the rest of the world. So congratulations uh, on what you're doing, both in your Brea campus and your Irvine campus. My wife Paula's here, Paula right there. So, um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, like you, we've enjoyed uh, our 10-year anniversary at Biola University as you're enjoying your 10-year anniversary also here at Crossway Church. And so we're so, um, so grateful to be here uh, today and to be part of this community. So um, Steve asked me um, to come. It was whatever it was some time ago. And of course, you know, said yes, honored, honored to be here. He said, it's our 10th anniversary. Something to the effect, can, can you talk about kindness? And you'd think maybe on a 10th anniversary, you might want to talk about like vision, uh, or remembering or perseverance. But I actually think this whole idea of kindness is a profound thought for Christians to be engaging in today. So just as this is a community of Jesus followers who takes God's word seriously, um, I'm going to go there to a couple of like really obscure stories um, in the Old Testament to talk about this virtue of kindness. And uh, one is out of the stories of David, and another is out of the stories of Nehemiah. And when you think about David, I know you, like, you think about, oh, David's the king, right? David is the, the warrior. David like wrote these epic psalms. David was the one who was hotly pursued by Paul. These are the images that come to mind about David. When you think about Nehemiah, you think, oh, Nehemiah, the, uh, the cupbearer to the Babylonian king, the one who came to Jerusalem and, and, and kind of revved up the troops there and, and built the wall and was this great orator and brought people together. But there's an often missed virtue in each of these leaders 
that points towards the grace of God. And it's not, it's not their public leadership, it's not their oratory skills, it's not their, their, their deep sense of being like great warriors or leaders. The virtue that David had, the virtue that Nehemiah had, that is a virtue that's often overlooked, is that they showed kindness in the most unexpected ways. And the great thing about this virtue is like, like, like for you and for me, this is like a virtue that like we may not be great orators, we might not be like these wonderful warriors and leaders of thousands, but we are the ones that God has called to say, I want you to show the grace that I have shown you to others. And when you think about it, the story of David and Nehemiah take us there in some pretty remarkable ways. David, um, like before he was king, there was another king named Saul. And Saul was, was like this passive-aggressive leader. He, he was very insecure, very like, paranoid, and uh, he had kind of this love-hate relationship with David. And, you know, at one moment he would be publicly praising him, the next moment he would be like publicly slandering him. And there came a point where, where Saul was so angry uh, at David, so threatened by this shepherd boy rising in prominence in the kingdom that like, he flung a spear at him and hotly pursued him and sent armies to, to hunt him down and kill him. And Saul was like, when, when Saul heard the, the songs that the people of Israel were, Israel were singing, they were singing, like, Saul has slain his thousands, David his tens of thousands. This, this fury would rise up within him. And then this national leader, his jealousy, his ego, his insecurity, his thirst for power created this wall between him and David. And there was no love lost from Saul towards David. And this paranoid king did everything that he could to kill this threat to his leadership. But after a time, Saul was dethroned. You, you know the story. Um, and, 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 and when he was dethroned and, and actually died by his own sword, David became the king. And the way things worked back then, when there's a new dynasty in power, not only do you become king, but the old king is like, you want to obliterate any semblance of that old king's dynasty that had been there before. So at a minimum, what David would want to do is like ignore everybody from Saul's family and from Saul's uh, former leadership core. And maybe at worst, completely wipe them out. So if anyone should have been afraid, it was this little boy with a big name. His name was Mephibosheth. He was a son of Jonathan. He was a grandson of Saul. He was the only one left in David's, excuse me, in, in Saul's family. And he was also a crippled boy. And so this grandson of the king, this boy who was lame in both feet, he lived in fear because he knew at some point David could come and hunt him down. And so if you think about this, and then you find this one verse tucked away in first, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, you see this is what David said when he thought about his predecessor, King Saul. Is there still no one left? Chapter 9, verse 3. In the house of Saul, to whom I can show God's kindness. Not what you expect from David. So David like sends out his, his servants, they 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 go about a hundred miles, 
and they find this little boy hiding in somebody else's family. This lone descendant of King Saul, this, this king that had raged against David. And so the servants found this boy crippled in both feet, bring him to the throne of David. And this boy, I don't know if he was carried in or he came in on crutches or he limped in, but he stands before this most powerful man in the region. And this is what David says to the lame boy, the grandson of the king who wanted David dead. He said this, don't be afraid, Mephibosheth. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. And this young boy, I I just can't imagine the scene. He, He bows down before the king. And the next verse, he says, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? And then David says it again. He says, Mephibosheth. You will always eat at my table. And verse 11 reads, Meshibotheth ate at David's table like one of the king's own sons. So, you know, David had, David had every right, right? I mean, he had every right to, to dine with the most powerful, with the wealthy, with the influential. But instead, he invites this disabled boy to sit at the royal table, not just for one meal, but for every meal, every day. And as Mephibosheth grew older, and had his own family, his own kids. David didn't sh- stop showing this kind of kindness to the most unlikely recipient of his grace. Fast forward to the end of the story. We read in verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. And I think that contrast is so striking. This is grace. Friends at Crossway Church, the people of God extend God's love to those who are most undeserving. And when David showed kindness to this little crippled boy, this boy with palsied feet who was the grandson of David's enemy, what David was simply doing was extending the grace that God had shown him. It's not the kind of hospitality that you expect from the king. It's not the kind of hospitality that you expect from the governor. And that's what Nehemiah was. Nehemiah was a wall builder. He was a governor. And he opened up his table to some pretty weary people. There's a part of Nehemiah, like this story of Mephibosheth, that's kind of like tucked away. You don't really notice it when you're reading the story. It's in chapter 5. And in chapter 5, the people of Israel, or Jerusalem, are having a really hard time. Nehemiah comes there, the walls are lying in ruins from the Babylonians that had come years earlier to destroy the city. The people were demoralized. And Nehemiah comes back and says, you know, we're going to build this city up again. And we're going to be proud of who we are as God's people. And we're going to have these walls newly fortified. And so the people started to follow him. And they might be merchants, they might be farmers, they might be priests, but they started to rebuild the city. But the problem was, when they were rebuilding the city, they had to give up their day job. And they were doing this day after day, week after week. And when they were doing this as volunteers, they weren't getting paid. And so they began to run short on money. They, became, they had these financially tight times. And so they, the, the people that were building these walls, they started to mortgage their fields and, and their homes and their vineyards just to have money to put food on their table. Some even 
went so far as to sell their children into temporary slavery so they could pay their bills. And so as exciting as it was, they were rebuilding this wall. They were demoralized people because they were, they, were, they, were, they were hard on money. They were finding their time so, so difficult. And so Nehemiah, he notices their despair, and this is what he decides to do. He decides to open up his table to them. Look at Nehemiah chapter 5, verses 17 through 18. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, some poultry were prepared for me, and every day an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. You know, Nehemiah is the governor. And he had every right to like say, you know what, I'm going to eat with a few of the elite and I'm not going to share my food with others, but he didn't do that. He opened up his table. And why did he do that? Well, verse 18, he said he did that because the demands were heavy on the people. These are like two like minor stories, so it seems, in these stories of these great leaders of the Old Testament. They're stories that overlook the kindness of the governor, the kindness of the king to invite to their tables, not the privileged and not the influential, but the least likely, the crippled grandson of the enemy, the people that had fallen on hard times. And they showed kindness when they didn't have to, to the to the foe, to the frightened, to the foreigner, to the forgotten, to the feeble. These were the recipients of, 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 of David's kindness and of Nehemiah's kindness. There's a Hebrew word like hased, and it's hard to like, like define in the English language, but it's this, this, this profound sense of, of grace, this out-of-the-box, relentless, unconditional, sacrificial, gushingly generous, God-graced, ex- others-exalting, Kindness, And that's what both of these leaders were doing. They were paying forward the kindness that God had showed them through his own grace in their lives. David to the crippled boy. Nehemiah to the tired and financially strapped builders of the wall. And I don't know for sure. Well, I do know for sure they're dead, both Nehemiah and David. But I, I don't know like what happened when they died. I don't know if when they went to heaven, like David said... God, you know, I, I, I know you were watching. Remember when I slew Goliath? Yeah, you remember when I led the armies against the Philistines? Remember when I wrote that beautiful poetry? They're going to be reading that for years. Like even in Crossway Church years from now, they're going to read in the 23rd Psalm. You know, that's like, that poetry is going to like live on. And I wonder if God said, you know what, David, it's, it's great stuff. But what I remember is this. There was this huddled, frightened little boy named Mephibosheth, who was the grandson of your enemy. And you took him in like one of your own sons. And you invited him to your table. And you made him feel like he was somebody special. And you didn't have to do that. I wonder if Nehemiah, when he died, the same thing happened. He goes up and God says, you know, hey, welcome, Nehemiah. Here you are in the new Jerusalem, right? Whatever. Um, and, 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 and Nehemiah said, you know, God, I, I did it for you. I, I built those walls. I kind of rallied the people. I helped motivate these folks that were so demoralized and they got excited again. We had these big celebrations. And, and God said, you know what I remember? 
I remember those people felt like they're end of their ropes financially and they didn't know what they were going to do. And, and you opened up your table and you invited them to come and eat with you. And you get the, the, the ox and the, and the fruit and the vegetables and the abundance of live wine. And you gathered them together and you gave to them. Even those from other nations of foreigners you brought to your table and you didn't have to do that. Sometimes I wonder if, if like what we think God remembers <laughs> is what we think is important and it's far different than what he says is important. I think he remembers our selfless kindness. And I, I don't use that word kindness flippantly. I'm not talking about niceness. There's a, like a big difference between niceness and kindness. Niceness is kind of bland. We need to stop telling our children to be nice and start telling them to be kind and, and tell them the difference. Kindness is powerful as a word. If you look through the whole Old Testament, New Testament, you won't find the word niceness there at all, or the word nice for that matter, but kindness is there throughout all of Scripture. It's a virtue that's rooted in Scripture. It's been uh, surrounded, surrounding um, Christian thought for, for centuries now. It's been the way in which the people of God, like us, have lived often anonymously for centuries. And unfortunately, more and more, kindness is a forgotten virtue. Kindness isn't the thing we do. It's the way we live. I guess I'm trying to like be that more at Biola. Like if I see a student, I might give that student kind of like a hug or a high five or something, walking down the sidewalk. And, and it wasn't long ago that there was a, um, a Facebook posting. I don't know if you have it up, up there or not, but this was a posting that happened somewhere at, sometime after that. Today, DBC president of Biola put his hand on my shoulder, looked me in the eyes, and asked me, how am I doing? He smelled like flowers, though. This dog's aroma made me feel like, dang, I'm going to be okay. I'm struggling, but I can do it, just saying. Like, what is he just saying? Somebody, somebody under the age of 25 helped me on this one. This uh, dog's aroma smelled like flowers. I'm not sure like what odor it was, but uh, somebody told me that's actually, this dog's aroma is a good thing, but I'll take it for what it is. Kindness is what Christ has called us to do. And we don't just do kindness in this Nike-esque kind of way. We love kindness. Jessica read that a few minutes ago when she was up here that when, when, when Micah goes before the Lord, he says, well, well with, with, with what shall I, I tell the people? How shall they, they live? And, 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 and God comes back and says, you tell them this, that they do justice. And they love kindness. It really means love kindness. We say love mercy. So it means love kindness. And you walk humbly with your God. And to love kindness, it seems so easy to do. And it is when things are going okay, right? Even when, you're, when the barista, she gets your coffee right, your latte right, of course you're going to be kind to her. Kindness is easy to come when there's harmony in our families. But kindness is a tougher road when we live in tension. Maybe in our marriages, maybe in our neighborhoods, maybe with our colleagues. And kindness is a lot harder to show to those who we've ignored or judged or avoided, or condemned. Being kind to those we like is easy. Jesus says something very interesting in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you have heard it said to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
But I say, you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. And so he has these two different groups of people. He has your neighbor and your enemy. So the neighbor are those within community with you, those you know and those you have association with. And I have to believe that enemy are those outside of your community, maybe not just your foe, but those that you are not in community with. And he said, I'm telling you, you love your enemy and you pray for those who persecute you. And the sad reality is that Jesus, as he takes these two verbs, love and pray, is that Christians, sometimes we do one or not the other. So that we, we, we love our enemies without praying for them. In other words, we form relationships, but we don't pray that the transforming work of the gospel has an effect on their life. And this is prayerless love. That's how too many Christians and churches have lived. But the other side is also a problem, and that is when we, we, we pray God changes the hearts of those outside of our community, but we keep them at such a distance that we have no relationship with them. And that's loveless prayer. And Jesus says, you love your enemy, and you pray for those who persecute you, and you don't get to pick which verb you do. What happens is, sometimes we do one or the other, and kindness is living a way that sometimes makes us feel uncomfortable, sometimes it's risky, and sometimes, like, like, if you're like me, that when, when you're kind to someone, you you expect them to like say th- at least say thank you, right? If not, be kind back to you. But what happens when that doesn't happen? What happens like when we're kind to someone and we take a risk on kindness and we get the, like the cold shoulder or the stiff arm or the silent treatment or whatever it is, and then we want to we give up because you know, I tried it and it didn't work. But the truth is we're kind not in order to be thanked. We're kind in order to be obedient. Because kindness is this, like, like, like with David and Nehemiah, this kind of this radical way of countercultural living. And it doesn't matter if we're accepted or not. When I was growing up, my, like, my father, who's a small-framed Canadian preacher, died 20 years ago. But he had this, like, like I don't know, this kind of uncanny way of just, like, loving people no matter what happened. And, and he would go up to strangers and... And he would like kind of extend to them this like generous, like gracious, like presence of hospitality to them. And I remember watching it as a little boy. I mean, he would he would hug the Islamic gas station attendant who was putting gas in our car. And I would like slink down in the back seat and go like, I don't know why he's doing this. Or he would like one time he was praying. No, excuse me. He was, he was getting his, his, his shoes worked on at the cobbler. And he asked the cobbler, he said, can I pray with you? And. They, they held hands across the counter as they prayed together. And I don't know, I, I was probably at the door praying like no one would come in and, and catch them like, like talking to God, like right there in the middle of the shoe store. Another time he had the audacity to walk up to Reuben. Reuben was a f- Jewish furniture merchant in this small city in the middle of Massachusetts where he lived. And my father got to know him over, you know, over time. And one time my father just had this like unction that he just had, a, and he walked up to Reuben, he held Reuben's face in his hand, and he said, Reuben, I love you. And I was going, oh, I want to crawl under like the desk there and just run out of the store. 
mortified that my father would like do such weird things like with people he barely knows. It was years later, um, I was living in Asia for a year, um, kind of a bit on my own journey, trying to figure things out. My father came to visit. I was in the capital of Bangladesh, a city called Dhaka, and he was there for a few days, and I remember this one morning, we were out for a walk. And I might have shared this story, I don't know, eight years ago when I was here. I was looking at my notes, but eight years is a statute of limitations on stories. I can tell it again. Um, but we were, uh, we were on this walk this one morning, and, and I remember as we were walking through these crowded streets with rickshaws and beggars and trash and just like this incredible poverty all around us, and I was trying to figure the whole thing out, and, and, and my, my father said, there's this verse that I keep playing through in my mind. He said, it's in Matthew chapter 10, and it's right after. Jesus tells his disciples, you want to be my disciple, you pick up your cross and you follow me. And immediately after that, my father's telling me that Jesus turns to his disciples and he says these words to them, whoever receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. He said, Baron, I don't really know exactly what Jesus meant there, but this I do know, that whoever comes across my path in life, stranger or not, I need to make myself receivable to them. For how will they ever receive the love of Christ? How will they ever receive the grace of God unless they receive me first? And it was like my life flashed before my eyes. My father hugged the Islamic gas station attendant prayed over the counter with the Armenian cobbler or held Reuben's face in his hand, this Jewish furniture merchant, and said to him, Reuben, I love you, that my father wasn't being weird. He was being receivable. It was Steve that just said a few minutes ago that as this church began, that we have been received by God. Now we need to receive others also. This is what Crossway Church God has called us to be. And the interesting thing is, Jesus never said you'd be received. He simply said you need to make yourself receivable. Because sometimes your acts of making yourself receivable will be accepted, sometimes they will be rejected, but they'll never be forgotten because there's something powerful in living out that grace towards those who come across your path. I mean, I remember as a child when my father wasn't received. When he, people walked away or they mocked him or they gave him some obscene gesture when he tried to be nice to them. And I, I remember feeling the rejection that he never seemed to feel for himself because he wasn't living that way so people would thank him or receive him. He was living that way to be obedient. Paul says, you are the aroma of Christ. To some you're the smell of life, to others you're the smell of death, but you just need to keep on smelling like Jesus. And it's not your responsibility to be received, but it is your responsibility, church, to make yourself receivable. One of the ways we do that is through that radical, countercultural, risky way of kindness. Kindness, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? And we exhale kindness when we inhale that which has been breathed into us by the Holy Spirit. Some of you may remember this past year, and maybe you did, maybe you didn't, but there, was, there were some laws that were being introduced. 
in Sacramento that were focused on faith-based colleges and universities in California because of certain sexual ethics that we had on our campuses that they were seen as being out of sync with the cultural mainstream. So these laws were going to penalize schools for having certain you know, policies on our books about how we expect our students and our communities to live. And so like this was going on like a year ago right now. And we like, we didn't know what to do. We fought this bill because we knew that bill would be like severe and harsh towards us. And eventually uh, that bill got worse and worse and worse. And then at the last minute, all of its teeth were removed and it went before Governor Brown has passed and he signed it into law the end of September of last year. But we were told, you watch out because more bills are coming and they're gonna be harsher and more severe because our sexual ethics were not aligned with the changing cultural and political landscape in California. Then something unusual happened. One of the uh, most outspoken critics of faith-based colleges and universities and one of the authors of the bill and a strong supporter of Senate Bill 1146 as it was going through, a, um, and, and very kind of a rising star in Sacramento, an assembly member, chairs the California Gay Caucus, I had a friend that called me up and said, you know what, I know this lawmaker in California. If you ever want to meet him, I'll introduce you to him. And he told me who it was, and it was this guy, you know, public enemy number one in my mind. And I was thinking, well, you know, know, we've tried. He's not going to meet with me. But he did, and we had a good conversation, and I invited him to Biola, and he came. He came to Biola, and we spent time talking to each other, and he met with students, he met with faculty, he met with some of our staff, he spent four hours there, and that night, we had a four-hour dinner together. We still have some pretty big differences over some, some important issues, but we talked. And we began to understand each other better, and we decided to take the way of talking across the table, rather than shouting across the street. A few months back, um, he and I co-wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, with the headline, we first battled over LGBT and religious rights. Hear how we became unlikely friends. Last night I got a text from a friend of mine who met this assembly member, Evan Lowe, and had never met him before, and he said, hey, I happen to know Barry Corey, and my friend texted me back. He said, I told Evan Lowe that I know you, and Evan Lowe said, I love Barry Corey. And like, I don't know where this is going. I'm not a prophet. I'm not the son of a prophet. My father works, you know, as a pastor. And I'm a nonprofit organization where I work, so you get the whole deal. But, I, but, but, but this I know that God has called us to begin conversations, to make ourselves receivable. And my hope is that Christians will be known as being gracious in our spirits, certainly sound and solid in our biblical truths, but known more for what we are for than what we're against. My hope is for people of faith to be known to love our enemies, those outside of our communities, those outside of our comfortable worlds that we're in, and pray for those who see the world differently. And loving demands proximity. It demands relationships. As hard as it is and as stereotyped as you might be, my hope is that people of faith will even open up their lives and their tables to some unlikely dinner guests like Nehemiah, and like David. 
In Crossway Church, the greatest influence lies ahead for you as you walk the way of Christ-shaped kindness in a world that's increasingly skeptical and fragmented and dubious about what Christians are for. And it's not just a path that's going to make you like a stronger leader and more winsome neighbors and truer friends and more effective in your career, but it's going to be a path that surprises others. When you initiate these conversations, these conversations point them towards the mercy of God and the grace of Christ. I've been talking to students, and I'll kind of end with this note, that the way in which they've been called to live is with a firm center and soft edges. By firm center, I mean this like commitment to God's truth and following Jesus as a disciple and loving him with heart and soul and mind and strength, but by soft edges. I mean, we don't lead with an argument, but we lead with humility. And we lead with listening to each other, listening while wanting to learn, not listening while waiting to respond. We lead with hospitality. We lead with grace. And we lead with kindness that can overcome division. The word said that Jesus came full of truth and full of grace, not half of each, right? That truth is a firm center. That grace is the soft edges. And if we are to live this way, we are called to be people of God who are serious about our convictions. But we walk that risky road of opening up ourselves to relationships that might be outside of our comfortable worlds in order to introduce people to the grace of God. I was telling this to a friend of mine not long ago about this idea, and this is what he said. He said, we've tried legalism, and that has proven inept and unattractive. Some are trying a warped form of love that renders us saltless. The only thing that works is a life that embodies grace and truth, lived out in relationship with others. I believe for you, Crossway Church, as you enter your second decade, that more and more you will be known by your Christ-shaped kindness to the communities that you serve. Romans 2, 4, after Paul has this little rant on, don't be judgmental, he says these words. He says, God's kindness leads to repentance. It's not my ranting. It's not my judgment. It's not my argumentative like articulation about the world of ideas that I live in. But it's God's kindness through me that leads to repentance. And it is the cross of Jesus Christ the most profound moment of history where kindness was ever displayed. We often think of the cross as bloody and cruel and dark and rugged, but this is where grace happened. God sent his son to extend his grace through the forgiveness of our sins to us who are so undeserving. Grace is the way of the cross lived through us. It is the cross way crossway. We live this way. Your kindness may be accepted, it may be rejected, but it's not going to be forgotten. We live this way not to be received, but to make ourselves receivable. Kindness, far more than judgment, far more than ranting, will lead to repentance. We cannot love well with a bullhorn. Kindness has more power to change than we can ever imagine. It can break down these impenetrable walls. It can lead to racial reconciliation. It can bring nations together. It can restore relationships that we thought were unsalvageable. It can bring servant leaders into places of leadership 
not through power, not through a scepter, but by living by, with, with this profound sense of love and who we are and who Christ has called us to be. And kindness can lead people to Jesus, which is the way we must radically live. So don't sell kindness short. It means we don't pursue only those relationships that make us feel comfortable. So take a lesson from David and Nehemiah. Go that unexpected one-way kindness. Worked at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary for many years, and there's one of the staff members here, graduate from Gordon-Conwell, and the founder, Adoniram Judson Gordon, the 19th century Boston pastor, once said, our task is not to bring all the world to Christ. Our task is to bring Christ to all the world. Bringing all the world to Christ sounds like dominion, but bringing Christ to all the world, that sounds like kindness. So keep living that way into your cities, into your neighborhoods, within your family. That kindness that is not about being thanked, that kindness is about being obedient. And remember that when we live this way, Jesus said you're going to go to people's houses and they're not going to receive you. And, and when you do, you, you, you walk off, kick the dust off your shoes. But don't give up. You just go to the next place. For kindness is not about being received. It's about making yourself receivable. For Jesus said, whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. And this is our calling, Crossway Church to people, be the people of God who live this way, being the aroma of Christ wherever you go. and Go that way with a great sense that you are called and you are loved and you are redeemed by God. You want to share that love wherever you go. Thank you and God bless you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a time this morning to hear from your word. Remind us again that the truth that we seek is not something that is just to make us feel good, but is make us live the way you've called us to live. And sometimes it's risky, and sometimes it's vulnerable, and sometimes it means we'll be rejected, and sometimes it's uncomfortable, and sometimes it's countercultural. But let us live this way as your people so that others will come to know the saving grace of Jesus Christ has transformed us. And may we go and do likewise as we live in this world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.